Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first edition of the Evergreen Book Club. On my left is Michaeline, who's looking at her phone and not paying attention. I'm right here paying attention and right along with you. Incredible, great stuff. And across from me, uh, at least six to eight feet <laughs> further away, is my friend Adam. Yes, good to be here. Um, we decided that um, the Evergreen staff loves to read. We love to read together. Um, we understand, though, that it is sometimes hard to get people in the same room together uh, to talk about a book, to talk about something you're reading, and really um, kind of commit yourself to engaging with whatever it is. Um, that's being read. Uh, so we decided that we would do that together as a staff and we would sit in a room together once a week and we would record our conversation, our discussion about uh, the thing that we read. We are going to start by reading uh, this book by Brennan Manning called The Importance of Being Foolish. He's an alcoholic and recovering alcoholic. So he explores uh, spirituality, explores Jesus, explores the gospels through the lens of or being a recovering alcoholic, which I value as a person who's gone to Evergreen for a long time. Um, and just as a person who values the notion that um, recovery is for everybody. But before we begin, Adam, what's the last thing you've read Ooh. with your eyes, not your ears? <laughs> Adam has this habit that he thinks that reading is listening to books in his car, which is kind of the same thing, but you can't call it reading, I think. Michaeline, what, what is your take on that? It's It's not reading. It's so, listening. Still, you're still learning. So what's, yeah, it's learning, but what is the last thing you read besides that? Uh, the last book that I consumed was a book called The Source by James Mishner. What uh, was that about? How was it? Do you recommend it? Yeah, it, it was strong. It was very, very long, subtle flex. Um, the last book that I uh, consumed is a book called The Source by James Mishner. It's about 1,200 pages of a comprehensive historical fictional review of Jewish history from the dawn of man to modern day Israel slash Palestine. That's a big flex. Yeah, that's, that is in intense. Yeah. It, like I never claimed that you didn't consume good stuff, but like <laughs> that's honestly, I'm proud of you. <laughs> it was incredibly educational and insightful and challenging in for me to reshape kind of how I understand the world and human history specifically in how human history's development impacts the Middle Eastern region specifically in Israel and Palestine incredible Michaeline which one I've like a book I've recently finished reading what was the last thing you finished cover to cover oh I just finished a book called try softer by Andy Kolber um, she's a licensed therapist author, but it was a lot about how our society has a tendency to like, if only I try harder, then things will get better. Um, and she talks a lot about actually, if we can just like be okay with how we're feeling and be willing to take a step back and be willing to try softer and not beat ourselves up so much. And, but she also, a lot of the book was just explaining the psychology of our brains and how th like things work in a way that makes us react to whether it's trauma or past experiences. Um, but that was really great. I'm really into books about understanding motivations behind people. Love me some anything about empathy and vulnerability. I.e. Brene Brown. And Brene Brown. <laughs> I've read Brene her Brown books from cover to cover here. many times. Incredible. Michaeline is our staff Brene Brown fangirl. That's <laughs> true. Well, since you guys asked, um, <laughs> the last thing I, <laughs> the last thing I read was a book called The Map Thief, which is about this guy who went all over to like map 
conventions and map uh like libraries stuff like that and he like stole valuable maps that only he knew were valuable but then it's it's like a, it's a true story but then the book goes into like why the map is significant and tells a historical story behind the map and like the misconceptions of the time because a lot of maps are like valuable because they're inaccurate to today or because they have weird features so it like goes into the historical context behind those weird features and like why they exist so it was just like chapter after chapter of this guy's in this town stealing this map and he walked out with it and then it tells the story of like oh yeah the this map is a weird map of new england because this was happening when the pilgrims showed up stuff like that so that's really interesting it's incredible i know i'm a history guy history degree over here <laughs> solidarity with all my history squad um but yeah that was incredible i recommend it for everyone so you're telling me there are map conventions yeah in miami which is this, this is like that's like a bit in the book is that it's like yeah, you wouldn't expect like people walk around Miami to yes. walk to a convention center for a map convention, but these bougie guys in linen shirts are like, <laughs> "All right, we're in." Wow, that's incredible. That sounds super interesting. It was very interesting. Um, so let's talk about this book, this first chapter, this first section of the importance of being foolish. Um, it's uh, pages zero zero isn't a book page, but uh, page three in the actual book through thirty-seven. Um, it's a, a subheading called truth. And when I read it, I kind of had the expectation of what the chapter or the section would look like because it was called truth. And it's kind of, it's a little hectic. He writes a little hectically in here. It goes from thought to thought to thought a little bit. The truth that I experienced in this first chapter was um, Brennan Manning kind of shaping truth. That's how I experienced it. Largely, and that simply could be because this is my first um, deep dive engagement with any of his writings. I mean, I've, I've heard of him. Uh, I hear him uh, referenced uh, often, but I, I've never read any of his stuff. And so I found it to be very helpful in really creating a foundation of understanding where he is coming from in his writing. I would agree with what you said, Kyle, that it, it was very hectic writing. <laughs> Um, the book I'm currently reading right now is just like short essays. So it was actually really difficult for me to like sit down and read this chapter and fully comprehend exactly what like the large theme of this chapter was. Um, yeah, but there's like little nuggets that I understood, but it was, yeah, it was challenging. It was challenging for me to find myself in a space where I could fully comprehend what I was reading the whole time. It would be helpful if it was broken up. Like it's hard when it's literally the first 35 pages is just one chunk. Like it would be helpful. And maybe that's just my personal way of reading and learning is just to have like a visually chunks, chunks of like, it would help for me to like separate and process what's actually happening. Yeah. Um, well, the book opens up, the first sentence of the the book is, The gospel narrative of the cleansing of the temple is a disconcerting scene. It presents us with a portrait of an angry savior. Like, <laughs> that is wild, and that's, like, incredible. But I thought when I read that that this was going to go one way, right? This was going to go into, like, we can't just continue to be okay with all of these things because we are shown grace. We can't continue to be okay with the lifestyle that we live or the lack of a lifestyle that we live because of grace. Um, but then he kind of goes that way and then he goes a different way. Like, did you experience that at all? Like he went from that to the only thing that defines us is the grace. Yes, I would concur. <laughs> I, totally. I, I think that 
you know, we're, we're in the midst of the first couple of weeks of the impact of the coronavirus. And we're in the midst of a space where people are becoming very introspective, where a lot of familiarities are being stripped away. And for me, this really starts to identify why some of these, why this is an anxiety producing time, because he starts to point out that we might have been creating a lot of pretenses out of things that aren't real. And all of a sudden that's taken away from us and it's no wonder we're anxious. It's no wonder we're, we feel lost. And that might be because we have built up security around stuff that we sh- aren't called to be building security. Yeah. Like it's for. easy to think of Jesus as a teddy bear when you have no need for any like, hard or jagged objects in your life to attack anything with yes, in a weird way. Exactly. One of the challenges that I think of of utilizing this book as a part of a book club is that this feels, this is so much more than what makes me feel good and what's fun to talk about and what's fun to think. This feels like it has life-altering implications which is why I'm excited to talk more about this, but why I'm also like, whoa, I feel completely unqualified to have a take on some of this stuff. And I think this goes back for me to some of that piece of, I I don't know that I'm in a place to consume this, but I so badly think this is important to who we are, what our church is, uh, who we are individually, who our families are becoming. Um, it it's one of those where it's like, man, I don't know that I'm ready to face some of these realities. Yeah. I think the thing I like about this the most, I mean, even, it even says in the chapter, but about the gospels, we should be embarrassed by the word because it says much of what we don't want to hear. Like that is this chapter in a sentence of like, man, this is revealing a whole lot of things about me that I'm probably still not even processing fully because I don't want to. But like, if I actually did process fully, it's like, dude, you're a pile of garbage. <laughs> like yeah. you are lying to yourself. You're lying to people around you. You are uh, like the fakest thing in the world. Yeah. You know, I, I think that one of the things that I love about Evergreen and working at Evergreen is the impact and embrace of the recovering community that we have. And I think this is such a oddly beautiful look into the reality of recovery. When you read through the beginning um, uh, uh, story where the man is coming to the, maybe for the first time, the realization of the impact of him leaving his child in his truck so he could go into the bar and the physical impact that that had on her, where it starts to like become real to him, in 13 years of working around that or within that at Evergreen, um, this is not a fictional story. This is a common story. Um, and and so I found it to be not just this, oh, wow, that they're proving a point, but this real like visceral, like, man, this is painful. Um, and I, I thought it was just a really, a really interesting step into um, kind of... Ha- the reality of us coming to grips with things that we we continue to push off and pretend don't exist. 
And I think that in this story, we become that alcoholic. We're the ones who think we know what we've been doing the whole time, and we've, we've created a context and a, and a construct around a lot of our beliefs until uh, someone comes and says, no, no, no. Uh, what you think is your reality is not your actual reality. Here's the actual reality. And the impact of learning our actual reality, um, that is really, really heavy. Yeah, and I think... This like reaffirms to me in a weird way that almost feels like any like religious or spiritual conversation without the acknowledgement of like recovery at its like bare bones is almost insufficient. Cause it's like, and that's why I connected so well with even pastor Tom when I was in middle school and high school is like, Oh yeah. Like he is like delineating, like the most important thing, even Brennan says it in here, like the most important thing is to admit that you're powerless over alcohol and like in all of our lives, we so sparsely admit that we are powerless over whatever the thing is, like over being right or over being funny, over having attention. And like that, that, it's so important to have that be the base on which we build this thing. And it's such a, like a interesting w- w- the way that like alcoholism recovery weaves its way into spirituality and faith. I think also like it, I just had that thought of it's not socially acceptable to be an alcoholic. And that's like a thing that people frown upon, but it's like socially acceptable to constantly be right. And it's socially acceptable to like, like be powerless over other things in your life. Um, And that's why I think it's hard for us sometimes to relate to the reality of alcoholism and the reality of being powerless over other things. Because if I'm powerless over food, someone else's response is going to be like, cool, man, like just keep eating. No big deal. Like, yeah, like if you're powerless over greed, you're an excellent business. Right. If you're powerless over laziness, like everyone else is encouraging you to take a nap because why not? Yeah, It's not it's it's considered not as unhealthy as being powerless over something like alcohol or drugs or porn. Yeah, and it's like we we just the being powerless over anything, like I don't care what the benefits of it are, <laughs> like being powerless over working out. Like we need to establish that like the end the end product of being powerless over something is not the the like its value, right? Like just because the end product of being an alcoholic probably is more destructive than the end product of being powerless over your addiction to exercise or your addiction to like being being wealthy that's it's those things need to be seen as equal i think i mean you can fight back against that if you want but like i I don't know well i think that's largely why we try to say recovery is for everyone at evergreen the challenge is it's really hard to identify that you almost have to convince people, which is a really crummy feeling for a church, right? Like, yeah. hey, it's easy to convince people that recovery is for addicts, uh, alcoholics. Uh, it's not easy to convince people that recovery is for all of us because we are all powerless over something. Yeah, and it's easy It's easy to like put a communal aspect to recovery, right? Like, we are all recovering from sin, winky face right (laughs) like we are all recovering from self-interest but where it gets hard and where people refuse to do that like this dude is when they're like man like i'm addicted to sex i'm addicted to drugs i'm addicted to like 
making money. I'm addicted to like the thrill of whatever, you know, and that that's when it gets hard because it's very easy to walk into this building, see these recovery for everyone signs and translate that into your head. And, oh, these people understand that we need to all recover from sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what's challenging and what I've learned a lot, I mean, with myself, but also especially in college ministry is like, as I can tell students as many times, like this is a safe space. I'm a safe person. Like, please talk to me when you are, when you are struggling. Like the reality is that it's not that easy. And like, how do we continue to like, how do we actually create a culture within church that is a similar culture within like AA meetings of like, and I'm learning, I'm learning how to be more open and more vulnerable with my students not in a way that I'm confiding in them, but in a way that they need to understand that like I struggle too. And life sucks for me sometimes too, because if I'm asking them to like pour their heart out to me, and if I'm asking them to like tell me what it is that they're deeply struggling with so I can help them, they need to also understand that I too am not perfect. And that's a really hard thing to do. Like it, it feels so counter intuitive, intuitive as a leader. Thank you, Kyle, for that word. Um, because we feel like we're supposed to have our life together Way to not in, the, <laughs> in a leadership <laughs> space. But in actuality, the more that I am vulnerable and the more that I am willing to be myself around students that I minister to, the more that I'm seeing them being more open and willing to come to me when they are in hard places. Yeah. So I believe, like, I believe everything you said, Mycleen, but also... Like I read this first, the like the first sentence of this story that he tells about the alcoholic who's in misery. And then the first thing the guy says to him that's trying to help is how long you've been drinking like a pig, Max. <laughs> like that is so, and like, obviously that's essential. That's an essential part of the healing process and the acknowledgement and the, like the translation in the story of this guy going from being pompous on his high horse to being weeping on the floor, unable to control his body because he's dealing with the grief, not only of his daughter having to like, I don't, I don't remember what physical amputation. Yeah. Amputation because he had to go get a drink for an afternoon, which turned into six hours, but also this acknowledgement that he wasn't in control anymore. And it's, it's easier for me. I don't know what it is for other people, but it's easier for me to be the person that says, Oh man, I'm messed up too. Like I am, I can, let's do this together. But it's so hard for me to walk up to someone when I know that I'm equally broken and say, how long have you been proverbially drinking like a pig? How long have you been addicted to attention? How long have you been addicted to this uh, idea of being married by the time you're 21? How long have you been addicted to whatever, you know, like, and I'm terrible at doing that, but that's being terrible at doing that. Isn't a subtle, like we love to claim it's a subtle, like, Oh, I'm so nice and gracious sort of thing, but we're just not fulfilling our obligation that Christ sets out for us here. (laughs) That's why I think, sorry, I'm going to chime in before you do Adam. Um, I think that's what I love, at least in my experience with Tom here as a recovery pastor and as a recovering alcoholic himself, like his transparency is one of my favorite things about him is that he has like, and I think part of that is because he's been a part of the recovery community for 20 years. Um, and I think sometimes it can really throw you off a little bit and catch you off guard. Um, but he is just like, he is, he's going to tell you what he's thinking. He's going to tell you what's on his mind. Um, which I think, yeah, I think it's healthy in spaces. Obviously he's had to do that with a lot of people to just like tell them exactly what's going on and help them. I am, that is not my natural response. So it's challenging for me to do that all the time. I feel like in page uh, 25 he writes the new testament is relevant only if we grasp the fundamental meaning 
meaning of the radical demands of the gospel while at the same time understanding that we can never completely fulfill them. Like that's the space, right? Like how do we, how do we fully understand or how do we fully grasp the radical demands um, while understanding that it's not just me or not just someone else that can't completely fulfill, fulfill them. It's me too. <laughs> that, that, is, that is exactly the tough space to be and exi- exist in when trying to help people um, come to grips with their own recovery as we too come to grips with our own recovery. Yeah, there's a there's a part on page 11 where he says, like in describing this alcoholic some more, he says, for Max, there were three options, eventual insanity, premature death, or abstinence. However, no choice was possible until the enemy was identified through a painful and merciless interaction with his peers. So, like, how bad am I being that peer who provides a painful and merc- merciless re- interaction? Like, what what do I have to do better? Because it's so hard, because we can say that all day long, that we screw up too. But how do we create a community that views a responsibility to people around you. How do we get there? So like everyone we surround ourselves with, everyone we know, everyone we love is able to speak those truths to us in a way that is hard and merciless. I I love in the story um, how the facilitator is managing through this like trust but verify approach to being merciless like he's like okay so you're gonna tell me this you know what let's get him on the phone let's let's put him on speakerphone what would he say like how he drank he gave him like the list of the times he drank right yeah and then he's like oh let's call the bartender or something yes and and i just i have experienced that in different leadership events or different brainstorming sessions or different strategic like i've experienced that uh, method before, and I've never thought of it in that way. Like, I, I think it's really powerful when you sit in a group, someone claims something, and you immediately, as a natural part of your response, question it and look for other people to prove it. Because when you start to do that, I, when I was a part of those things, I start to realize like how f- almost flippantly I start to say things um, that fit and might not be the whole truth, like the whole embodiment of the truth, not in an attempt to lie or, and not even an attempt to um, gloss over, but just in natural communication, how we often don't fully communicate uh, the reality of a situation or a perspective. And then he gives this illustration of a 100-meter sprinter asking to like run 100 meters in five seconds. And then when this runner can't do it, they begin to blame like the shoe, their shoes and the track and the wind. And it's like, dude, it's not, it's not those things. Like you're blaming, you're blaming those things without acknowledging that you're never going to be able to do this. You're never going to be able to love people the way that Christ did. You're never gonna be able to run a hundred meters in five seconds. And it just, what was your, like, how did you guys perceive this flip from the mercilessness and the like, toughness of the love that he shows in this first few pages first little part and then transitions into this whole thing about how jesus calls us to care for each other i found that when i first started reading this book and identifying with that story between the alcoholic and the facilitator um the treatment facilitator 
I was identifying with the facilitator, not the alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And then you hear that story and you're like, oh, maybe what he's trying to say is I'm the alcoholic in this story. Uh, particularly when he gets into page 20 and references this quote. This is, man, this is a hard-hitting quote. Uh, we're satisfied by our decent little life. We're pleased with our good habits. We take them for, for virtues. Uh, we're pleased with our little efforts. We take them for progress. We're proud of our activities. They make us think that we're giving ourselves. Uh, we're impressed by our influence. We imagine that it will transform lives. We're proud of what we give, though it hides what we withhold. Uh, we may even be mistaking a set of coinciding egoisms for real friendship. Like, whoa, that was, that was tough to read. Um, that was a, that was the, Hey, let me verify what's actually going on. Let me recalibrate your perspective here, uh, because this could be the world you're actually living in. Yeah. There's a, there's this weird pattern that he's getting at where it's like, it's not, he's trying to say, it's not about what you do, but why you're doing it. Right. Like it's not about like doing these things. It's not about pretending to be whatever. It's about like this constant awe and wonder and surrender to this new life that you decide once you commit to following Jesus. And that's a hard thing for me to, as a lifetime Christian who has never not felt like one, that's a hard thing for me to process as like, I will never have the experience of someone who is leaving an old life behind and like jumping on this bandwagon. It's a bad analogy, but like of getting to this space and there's nothing for me to compare it to, right? There's nothing for me to say, Oh, before I was broken and lost, but now I feel whole and alive again because every pain I've ever felt, every joy I've ever felt, every excitement, every sorrow is all in the context of me having already followed Jesus. So to like hear of these stories of people and he, he ends it like with this. I mean, we don't have to end there, but like the last um, paragraph of the section talks about um, Charles de Foucauld, we'll call it that, um, who says, as soon as I believed there was a God, I understood that I could do nothing else than live for him exclusively. My religious vocation dates from the same hour as my faith. So it's like, do we, are we being it's so hard to separate why we're doing things and what we're doing. Like we were even talking today about what it looks like to be a church that wants people to think that we wants people to think that we're feeding kids versus want just wanting the kids to be fed. But I go into my own brain and I'm like, do I just want people to think that I want the kids to be fed? (laughs) You know what I mean? More than I actually care about if the kids are fed or not. Do I want to be perceived as someone who cares about the vulnerable and the lonely? It's this like weird hyper hard thing to understand. I think those are the things. The reason that's so hard for me is because we I've been lying to myself for so long about something. And I don't even probably know what that is yet about what my desire is like to be thought of or what I want people to perceive me as, or I'm being absolutely like stranglehold held by those desires to be a certain person. And that's just the worst. For sure. Uh, you know, and we can keep listing those things off, right? Do we like the idea of being vulnerable or do we actually like to be vulnerable? You know, do we like the idea of giving or how we're perceived as giving or do we like to actually give? And and I think that when you when you take that beyond a bunch beyond a bunch of social perspective or personal experiences and say, 
do we like the idea of being saved more than we like being saved? Yeah. And it's like, man, what kind of life implications, what kind of faith implications does it have if we start moving away from just loving the idea of being a Christian more than we love actually being a yeah, Christian? Yeah, we love to... We love anything that keeps us on a pedestal, right? We love everything that allows us to look down upon people. But Brennan Manning in this chapter is just spending pages and pages just ripping us down from that pedestal and saying, there's nothing unique about you. There's nothing special about you. None of this garbage that you're pretending is in my name is worth anything because the only thing that defines you is the like unbridled grace that you're given. And I think that's what was confusing for me until we kind of talked this out of like, why is it going from uh, you're broken and useless to, but grace is still there. It's because the grace isn't there to supplement all of the stuff we do. The grace is there because all the stuff that we do doesn't matter. And that's the hardest thing I think for us to come to grips with. And the hardest thing for us to think about is like, man, this is all so simple. I I think you're right on. And I think that is why it's exciting to be able to create this opportunity um, to not only have us as a staff read through this book together and talk about it, but to invite other people to read this book, uh, to listen to this discussion, and to engage more deeply uh, in these ideas. Yeah. I was just going to say one more thing. Go for it. And that is just that, like, walking into this conversation was a lot of, I don't really know how to contribute to this because this book is really confusing to me. Um, And what I appreciate about conversations like this is that they can take different turns and, like, it brings up conversation, whether it was intended from the book or not. Um, So I think that's cool. (laughs) So find a friend and read. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And you're not stupid. Reading is cool. Yeah, so... If that's you, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Uh, If you just continue to, on your own, read through these different segments and engage in the discussion with us, great. If this inspires you to recommend this book to someone else and continue the discussion with them, great. Uh, We just want to say thank you for doing this with us in a way that we hope can connect you and we look forward to continuing uh, this book club in the coming weeks.